So Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 21. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. Um, We are making some progress, making some headway through this wonderful uh, letter that Paul has written to the church in Galatia. And so let's read together. So Galatians 4, starting at 21, says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through the promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor, for children, the children of the desolate will be many more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. What does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. So Paul here, Paul here is adding yet another facet to his argument to the church in Galatia as to why they shouldn't listen to these Judaizers, as to why they shouldn't submit to this teaching that in order to be faithful to God, in order to be justified before God, you need to become culturally Jewish. You need to become circumcised. You need to begin. You need to become Torah observant, and you need to adopt the Jewish social norms of the day in order to be justified and right with God. Paul is bringing yet another argument here to bear against the Judaizers, and he's again citing Scripture. Now, what's interesting about the way that Paul cites Scripture in this particular instance is he's doing it in an allegorical way. He's doing it in an allegorical way. Now, I've said jokingly to other people, um, when Paul quotes scripture here, he quotes it and uses it in a way in which if he was writing an assignment at a modern Bible college, he would fail for bad exegesis, right? Just because we're taught a method and a system of exegesis in Bible college um, that Paul feels free to disregard in this particular instance. Paul sees, and Paul sees in the, in the Old Testament, in this story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, he sees in this an allegory of what's actually happening in the present time for the church in Galatia. And he sees it as uh, a story of two covenants, one that produces slavery and children of slavery, and one that produces freedom and children of freedom. And so that is what Paul is, is going to be unpacking for us here uh, this morning, or rather, that's what he was writing to the church of Galatia about, um, and I will be hopefully unpacking a little bit here this morning. So he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other of a free woman. Um, now, Abraham ended up having, I think, eight sons, but the two that he's focusing on are the ones relevant to our story here. He says, but the one of the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. Now, <clears throat> what I think Paul is trying to highlight here, what Paul is trying to highlight here is that there's a way of doing things that is a way of the flesh. 
You see, Abraham, if you're not familiar with the story by now, all the way back in Genesis, Abraham was given a promise. He was called by God back when he was Abram. He was called by God to a land he didn't know, and he was given a great promise that through him, the Lord would bless all the nations of the earth. And it's said that Abraham simply believed God, and, and God counted that to him as righteousness. God simply counted Abraham's faith in him as righteousness. And so Abram's getting on in years. He's getting on in years, and he is waiting for the promise of God to come to pass in his life. And I don't know if any of you have actually received a promise from the Lord before or felt like the Lord had promised you something or, or, or shown you that something was going to come to pass in your life, um, and then you've had to wait. I don't know if you, any of you have experienced that. I've experienced that. I am presently experiencing that. And let me just tell you, it's not fun. And Abraham, a Abram it had experienced the exact same thing. Him and Sarah... They had been waiting for a very long time for a child. You see, Abram's name in Hebrew is actually father. And it's a bit of a joke that he had no children by the time he was like 80 years old, right? And instead, God comes to him and says, no, you'll be the father of many nations. You will become Abraham, the father of many nations. And so he's waiting for this promise to come to pass. And so him and Sarah decide that, well, we're going to help God along in this whole process. What we're going to do is what we're going to do is we're going to produce a child of our own. So what Sarah does, is she says, look, here, take my slave Hagar, take my servant Hagar, and you do the thing with her that makes children, and, and, and maybe by her we can bring this whole promise to come to pass. Let's, let's get this going. Let's get this going. Let, let's, let's, get, um, um, let's get this promise coming to pass, and we're going to do it in our own strength. We're going to do it in our own flesh. We're going to do it our own way. And so Hagar... Hagar is the victim in all this. That's, you shouldn't read that passage and go, <laughs> Hagar's the bad person in this. Hagar is a victim in all this, but through Hagar, Abraham ends up having a son named Ishmael. And so all's well and good, right? He has a son named Ishmael, and now he has an offspring through which God can use to bless all the nations of the earth. But that's not how the story goes. You see, Ishmael is... Ishmael comes about as a result of Abram and Sarah's own striving and their own efforts to actually do what God had always promised that he would do. And so that's why Paul picks up this story. He says, look, Ishmael, he doesn't use his name, but Ishmael is, is the product of what it is when we in our own flesh try to do, when we try to bring about the very promises of God in our own strength and in our own way. To try and make things happen on behalf of God. He says, but you, you're not to be that. You see, because there's this other covenant. There's this other son, this son Isaac, who is actually a result of the promise. You see, God was not slow, as some count slowness, in bringing about his promise. Though, let's be honest, sometimes he definitely feels slow. No, nobody? Y'all have perfect patience when it comes to the Lord, isn't it? I'm the only one sitting there going, when I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a face-to-face -face conversation about the meaning of words. <laughs> when you say soon, <laughs> it's got to mean something, right? <laughs> it's okay to have frustrations with the Lord sometimes, um, as long as you bring them to him and, and, and talk it out with him. But the Lord was not slow in bringing about his promise, and so he actually blessed Sarah with Isaac. And Isaac was the son of the promise. 
And Paul takes this, this whole story, this whole story where, where what you're meant to see in the way that Paul is telling it is that one son came about as a result of the efforts of the flesh, human efforts to make the promise happen in their own strength. And the other son came about as a result of God doing what God does and fulfilling his promises in his way and in his time. And what Paul is doing is he's picking this up. He says, look, I'm taking this allegorically, but what I see happening here is the same thing that's happened in our time and in our day here with the coming of Jesus and now this competition that's happening between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he says that these two women, they represent two different covenants. The first one is Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. Now, Moses was not of the line of Ishmael. That doesn't really make sense from that perspective. But Paul says, look, because he was a slave, those who are born of the covenant of Sinai are born into a slavery to the law. And what, that's what Paul wants to highlight. That's what Paul wants to highlight is that, is that of these two covenants, the one that comes from Sinai, meaning the law of Moses, it actually brings people born into slavery, born underneath a law. But he says that you don't belong to that anymore. Now remember, the Galatians are actually Gentiles, right? So they weren't born under that law for the, you know, for the most part, unless they were actually Jewish. But they, they were actually born, um, they were born under the law of the world, and they weren't born under the law of Sinai. And he says, you're not born of that law. You're not born of that covenant. You're born of another mountain, Mount Zion. And this covenant, this new covenant, the one we just celebrated when we took communion, actually comes free. It's a free Jerusalem. It's a free people which it brings about and it actually gives, um, <laughs> gives life to. And, and what Paul is really wanting to highlight to them is that he wants the Galatians to understand fully what they're getting on board for. He wants them to understand fully what they're getting on board for. Because you see, as soon as you begin to resubmit yourself to the law, it begins to produce slavery in you. And it may not feel like that in the beginning. It may feel like religious piety. It may feel like, oh, like we've really started to get it together now and, and all these sorts of things. But what Paul wants to highlight is that, is that if you are going to submit yourself to the law, it will begin to produce slavery in you. Whereas we are not supposed to be children of slavery, religious slavery. We are meant to be free. We are meant to be free in the new covenant. A covenant that's not based upon rules and regulations of don't taste, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. But a covenant that is based out of relationship by His Holy Spirit with our Creator. Where we're actually in relationship rather than being bound by rules. And so he picks up this analogy and says, this is what is happening. If you want to go down this road, it will end up producing slavery in you. And that is not what God ever intended for his children. His intention was always that we would receive the promise of Abraham by faith. That we would receive the promised spirit by faith and not works of the law. And he, the promise was always that you would be free and not bound in slavery. In fact, he wants to release you and to free you from slavery to religion. And so he goes on and, and highlights. He says, now, in, in verse uh, 28, he says, Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Children of the promise. 
But just as then the uh, child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, he says, so also now. What Paul is highlighting, he's like, look, this is to be expected. This is to be expected, this persecution, this, this pressure you're now receiving from the Judaizers, because it's always been the case. And he references again the fact that when Isaac was born, when Isaac was born, it says that Ishmael mocked Isaac. And Paul takes that up and says, see, the one who was born a slave always mocks the one who was free. The one who was born a slave always persecutes the one who is free. And, and, that is what, and that is what the Galatians were experiencing. These Gentiles were being brought into this beautiful, wonderful faith. They were being brought into this relationship with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were experiencing for themselves, by faith alone, the freedom of the Spirit of God as He brought them to life as he brought them back into relationship with their creator, their heavenly father, as they were coming alive and experiencing the power of God in their midst, it was always to be expected that there would be those who had not experienced that. There, there would be those who, who were still sons of the old way of things, that they were always going to come and try and re-yoke and re-enslave and persecute those who were free. Because look, that's what Ishmael did to Isaac. This is what Paul is trying to get at. So it's not unexpected that this has actually happened. And rather than, rather than being an incomplete gospel, rather than being an incomplete gospel um, that's, sorry, I'll backtrack. They had accused Paul, I believe anyways, of preaching an incomplete gospel. That Paul had some of the stuff right, but, but they needed to fill out Paul's gospel, which included obedience to Torah and Torah observance and, and all these sorts of things. But rather than being an incomplete gospel, as they were saying that Paul was preaching, in fact, what they were preaching and teaching was, in fact, a, a yoke of slavery, bringing them back under religious slavery and back into a covenant that doesn't lead to life. So this was always to be expected. And so Paul says, look, what does the scripture have to say about this whole situation? He says, drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. That is why, that's why I said it's interesting the way that Paul actually uses scripture here, because if you actually go back and read the story in Genesis between Sarah and Hagar and, and Abraham, you shouldn't come away with the idea that the way that Sarah and, ha Sarah and Abram actually treated Hagar was a good thing. Like, you shouldn't come away with that, with that idea, right? Like, actually, the point is to show, to show actually that, that, that Abraham and Sarah were actually, um, were actually wicked in their actions because, remember, God actually shows favor to Hagar when she's in the wilderness and even gives Hagar a promise for herself and for her son that he would become a great nation, too, God takes care of Hagar. God takes care of Ishmael. But Paul, Paul's not interested in, in that part of the story because it's not part of the allegory that he's bringing to bear. He's simply picking up the verbatim text of Scripture and going, look, in this situation, you need to do what Abraham and Sarah did to Hagar. You need to drive out the slave from among you. And that's really what I want to focus here on this morning is how is it that we drive out the slave from among us? <clears throat> So that, that's really where I want to. Uh, that's really where I want to uh, want us to spend time here this morning. Because the reason why we're going through the book of Galatians 
is because the spirit of religion has never really gone away. The spirit of religion has never really gone away. There's a spirit of religion in the world. It, it, it's <clears throat> Look, sometimes you know, we, we talk about the spirit of religion or, or religiosity or pharisaicalism or what, whatever kind of label you want to put on it. And we talk about it like this is only a problem that exists in the church. But the reality is, is, that, is that this same spirit doesn't exist just in the church. It's a worldly spirit. So it exists in the world wherever you go, and, and, and like you will not be able to es- escape it in that sense. You can go to another religion. The spirit of religiosity will be there. You can declare yourself to be an atheist, right? So I don't believe in any religion. I don't believe in any sort of spirituality or anything like that, right? You will find a spirit of religion even in that group of people. It's found in every single political movement, every group, and every religion. And it's not just on one side of the aisle, too, because again, that's the temptation that we. That's the temptation that, that, that we have is that, well, you know, of course it's the lefties. They're, you know, they're the ones who've got there. Look at, look at them. Look at them out there and how they're behaving. Man, they, they certainly are. They have a religious spirit about them, about, the, about their beliefs and their tenets and their doctrines. <clears throat> you go to the other side, you go to conservatives, and it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. How conservative can you be? before you're not conservative enough. This is the thing about a religious spirit, is it's never enough. You're never enough for a religious spirit. And the religious spirit is no discerner. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't even care what side you're on. You know, we witnessed this just recently with, with, the, with, the, with the pandemic, right? <clears throat> a great schism was facing the church. Right? There, was, there was whole sections of the church that were entirely against the vaccine, entirely against masks, and that for anybody who got the vaccine, or anybody who wore a mask, you were just capitulating to the Antichrist. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there was definitely a lot of angst about, about what was going to happen. Are we you know, in the end times? And just I'll let you know, we've been in them for about 2,000 years now. Um, but there's like, are we, you know, is this going to be the big one? Is, it, is all things going to wrap up because we've got to wear masks now? Right, And then the other side, then there's other Christians who are like, how dare you be so cavalier with other people's lives by not getting vaccinated and not wearing masks? And I could tell you right now that the religious spirit does not care what position you hold so long as you're dogmatic and zealous about it and you are willing to enslave others with your opinion. And the same thing is happening here in Galatians. It's the same spirit. It's the same thing over and over and over again, no matter where you go. And so the first thing, so the first thing we want to do as we drive out the slave from amongst us, here's what I'm saying. is: like, Firstly, we need to begin with the log in our own eye. All right? That's where we start. Because, again, the religious spirit's going to want you to start with everybody else. Right? Who's good at sorting everybody else's problems out? I am. Come and, come and ask me what's wrong with you after the service. I'll let you know. <laughs> Wisdom tells us, Jesus tells us, we need to start with the log that's in our own eye before we are even remotely qualified to deal with a speck in somebody else's eye. And the reason why Jesus, I believe, tells us to deal with the log in our own eye is because, firstly... <clears throat> 
If you've just gone through an entire process of removing a log from your own eye, by the time you actually are able to see clearly enough to notice the splinter or the speck in your brother's eye, you can deal with them with a lot more compassion, a lot more understanding, and far less judgmentalism. Those of you who have been through great struggles with sin and have come out the other side, have seen great victory and transformation in the Lord and great freedom in the Lord, when you see someone struggling with that sin, how much more does your heart move with compassion for them knowing the things that you've been through? So we start with ourselves and we look at ourselves and we go, okay, what is it about me? What is it about me that is presently living in slavery to a spirit of religion? What is it about me that is presently living, um, uh, living under, yes, the slavery to religion? Is there any religious standard that if I don't meet, I feel guilt, shame, or fear? Or things, things that I must do in order to demonstrate to others that I'm a Christian? Because that, that's really like the heart of it. It's like, what can I, how are people going to know I'm a Christian unless I do X, Y, Z? And really, the, the important thing in our hearts is, at that point is like, well, the important thing is that other people know I'm a Christian. Not necessarily that I am one. Does that, does that nuance, does that distinction make sense? Sometimes, sometimes we don't understand our own thinking. We don't understand why we do the things we do. But I'm asking you to be a little bit introspective here in this moment. and Just kind of recognize that sometimes your heart is duplicitous. And sometimes you believe lies because they're self-serving. And, the, and, 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 it's, and it's easy to believe because it makes you feel good about yourself. <clears throat> But are there things in your life, there are, are there things in your life that you do to satisfy a religious spirit, to satisfy an external pressure to be Christian or to act Christian? So, look, I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to give you some examples, right? And these examples are not exhaustive, all right? I'm giving you these examples so that hopefully by hearing them and thinking through them, you can begin to sense and feel what religiosity looks and feels like. So when you, when you catch it out there in the wild, right, you kind of know what you got. Is that okay? So don't, don't take this as the exhaustive list and go, well, he didn't mention my thing, so I'm good, right? <laughs> use it, use it as, a, as maybe a rubric that might help train uh, your mind and your heart to kind of notice and be sensitive to when there's maybe a religious spirit at play um, trying to yoke you to... Uh, slavery, and so um, this is what it can look like: um, feeling guilt over not being prayerful enough. Now, I don't want anybody to ask me about my prayer life because I, I didn't pray this week. I'm going to quickly, quickly, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I pray today because I'm pretty sure someone's going to ask me at church. Right? God loves your prayers, and like a, a good father wants to meet with their son or daughter even if they're coming to them for the wrong reasons. <laughs> he still wants to meet you there. But, but that, that guilt, that fear, that I need, to, I need to be able to say that I prayed so that this person over here doesn't judge me, that's, that's religious. Feeling shame over not reading your Bible enough. Now, now we're going we're gonna to swing back around because I don't want you to hear, well, Patrick doesn't think you should pray or read the Bible or anything like that. <laughs> We're going, to get to, we're going to get to this in a second. But is there a sense of guilt and shame about that? And is that guilt and shame actually rooted in a fear, 
of what others are going to think about you if they saw your life and your habits for what they actually are and not what you present on a Sunday morning. Do you feel a pressured, do you feel pressured to engage in a certain Christian practice in order to be part of a community? And I'm, I'm going to hopefully hit everybody with this one so everyone can just feel bad together and don't feel like I'm targeting any one person specifically. All right? Well, I'm an equal opportunity offender. All right? <clears throat> so, and the, these are things that I have observed in religious communities before. These are things that I've experienced or maybe even have put on other people at times in my life. So, first one is speaking in tongues. There's certain communities where if you don't speak in tongues you're kind of oh, maybe viewed with a bit of suspect, you know? It's like, well, you know, if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit in the way that we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, do you really have what we have? Communion frequency. Some people, some people, like we've, we've just started doing communion every week because we think it's important. But there was, there was times in the history of the church where they did communion once a year. Okay? But in some communities, they look at you sideways as to why you don't do communion more frequently. And then you might feel this pressure. Oh, I, 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 need, I need to do communion every single week in order to feel like I'm actually living up to their standard. Tithing. There's some communities that will check your bank accounts. <laughs> it's funny, there was, um, <clears throat> there was a church uh, hall that we, we, we hired years and years ago, like over a decade ago. Anyways, <clears throat> um, and I was part of another church, and, and uh, it was an interesting thing. When, when, you, when, you, when you hire somebody else's church building, and you kind of see how they have things laid out, you're like, hmm, that's interesting. And one of the things that they had was they had a little carousel, like a little, like, you know, like a little brochure stand, you know, like, you know, in like a, like a tourist trap, you know, like the postcards. Except instead of postcards, they had this little plastic carousel. And in the carousel slots were all these envelopes. <clears throat> and, and on the envelopes were written people's names. Right? And, then, and, and what was on the, on the, on the envelope, that was, that was, with their name, was that's where people were supposed to put their offering in. And so what was supposed to happen is that you were supposed to come and you were supposed to give your offering. And then, and then they could check. They could check to make sure you were giving. They could check to make sure that you had given enough. Now, I'm sure that at some point, that came from, like, this is actually helpful for our community. Lots of traditions start from a place of helpfulness, right, perhaps. But that was an odd thing. And I imagine if you were, I imagine if you were a part of that community, and maybe you didn't have money to give, that each and every Sunday you would walk past that carousel and feel a sense of guilt and shame that you weren't living up to some standard. <clears throat> maybe it's a certain belief system. Um, maybe it's being a Christian Zionist. Maybe it's being a Christian nationalist. Maybe it's voting for the Liberal Party, voting for the Labor Party. I always feel like I need to mention both. We're voting for the Greens. I don't think I've met a Christian like that. Um, attending pro-life rallies. 
being, being politically conservative. Well, I mention these things over and over again because one of my great fears for the church, one of my great fears for the church in the next 10, 20, 30 years is that what's going to happen is that the left, what we, what we call the left now, is going to collapse, all right? Because they just are going out there to a point where... I, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to speak about this in a way that I'm not being... Um, degrading towards them, but I just see the left, it's going to collapse because it just does not have the power to sustain itself and you see it eating itself from the inside out because again, there's a religious spirit there and it's never good enough. You're never woke enough. You're never enough in that and, and you might think, take J.K. Rowling, you know, the author of the, the Harry Potter series. Um, Maybe reading the Harry Potter series is one of those religious standards. You know, that you're not allowed to or something like that. But J.K. Rowling, who, who was a radical feminist, right? And she hasn't really changed her mind on things, but now she's not left enough. She's not left enough for the left. And she's being attacked. She's being attacked and attacked and attacked, right? And so, so my great fear for the church because the church tends to be, more often than not, far more conservative. My fear is that what's going to happen is that as the left collapses, as, as that whole side of things collapses and things swing back to the right, what's going to begin happening is there's going to be people who are going to go, well, I'm Christian because I'm, I'm socially conservative. And I just want to tell you, being socially conservative is not the same thing as being Christian. I'm seeing testimonies already coming out from people who have left different religions or left the left or, or all these sorts of things. And they're discovering, oh, I realize now I'm a Christian. And when you hear their testimony, it has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with being socially conservative. And they're like, I've found my tribe here in the church because they're conservative like me. And I just want to warn you, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. And so like I said before, the religious spirit is not just in the church. It's a worldly spirit. And so it's in the world and it's present in every group, every political movement, every religion. And what it looks like is it's a setting a standard and a set of rules that you have to live up to and live by in order to be accepted and to be okay by that group. And in Jesus... And in Jesus, we are accepted freely by his grace. And we accept and embrace others freely by his grace. And we love them unconditionally by his grace. Not just because they can fit our conservative social circles. Or because they you know, are, are uh, pro-life. Or not because they vote the right way. Or they give enough. Or any of these sorts of things. There, are, there is no conditions for entry into the community of the church except for faithfulness to Jesus. Now we might have discussions about what that looks like, but there's no conditions upon entry into the community of Jesus apart from faithfulness to Jesus. And so I feel like now that I've gone really hard at all this stuff, and you may go, well, it's like, so I don't do anything and, and everything's fine. <laughs> I want to talk about the difference between religiosity and spiritual disciplines. Because they can look the same sometimes, but they're actually very different things. You see, I'll use Jesus as my example. Um, hopefully I'll be safe there. Um, 
when Jesus' disciples are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and, and, and eating them on the Sabbath, and, then they, and Jesus starts copying flack from the Pharisees. Look at, your, look at your disciples. They're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, you know, do you guys recall what David did with the showbread when, when him and his men were hungry? How they came and ate the bread that was specifically set aside for the presence, and, and, um, and God was okay with that. Don't you know, he starts talking about it, like, don't you know that Sabbath was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath? What he means by that is this, is that, is that spiritual disciplines were meant to serve our relationship with God. They weren't meant to rule over us and to be our God. So religiosity, religious things are things that you do in order to prove that you're a Christian. It's, 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 it's something that you can show people. Hey, I do this, so you know I'm a Christian. I come to church regularly, you know, so you know I'm a Christian. And, and, and its goal, its goal is, to, is to show to an outward group, an outward group that you're okay, that you're justified, that you're right. And this is, this is what the Judaizers were doing to the Galatians. You need to be circumcised. You need to be Torah observant. You need to be all these things in order for you to be right with God and, more importantly, right with us. That's what a religious spirit does. That's what religion does to you. And the thing is that in, under that system, under that system, as you learn more, as you find more things to be religious about, it's just more and more a weight that you have to carry. It's more perfections that you're never going to live up to. It's more standards you're never going to be able to escape from. And all it is is a heavy burden that gets placed on your shoulder. It's a heavy yoke, and yet Jesus says, come to me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, that, what that's not to say is that there aren't good spiritual disciplines. There isn't good religion that actually will serve your relationship with God. It's a good thing, I believe, for you to maintain a Sabbath day. Not because your standing with God is based on that, but because... Maintaining a day to rest and to commune with God and to set aside to God, that has been a source of life for me. And I say that as someone who is very poor at maintaining a Sabbath. Maintaining a prayer life has been a source of life for me, a source of transformation for me. And so I maintain that spiritual discipline. And I may even try and be religious about it. I may set rules and guidelines that I'm going to try and follow in order to help me, as someone who's not naturally organized in that way, to try and help me stay in that discipline because it is life for me. But a religious prayer schedule doesn't justify you before God. Reading the scriptures... Meditating upon the word of God. That has been a source of life for me. But I am not justified before my heavenly father by the amount of scripture that I know. Or how much time I spent reading. Is this nuance making sense? Because all of those things I mentioned before when I was talking about this is what a religious spirit can look like. These very same actions can actually be a source of life for you. It just depends on the order in which you have it. it. Depends on the order in which you have it. So how do we drive out, getting back, to, getting back to the main point here, how do we drive out the slave from among us? We start with ourselves, and we have to be honest with ourselves and go, are there things in me 
that I only do out of religious compulsion? Are there, only, are there things in me that I only do out of religious compulsion? Are there things that I try and push on other people out of religious compulsion? I'll give you, I'll give you a story. I've told this here before. When I first got saved, when I first got saved, um, I had one of those night-to-day conversions. Now, if you knew me back then, um, you may be like, well, it wasn't that much day. Um, but for me, it felt like Night to day, all right? <laughs> a lot of growth had to happen from back then. But that first night, this radical encounter with the Lord, I gave my life to the Lord. I felt brand new inside. And the very first thing I wanted to do, my first impulse, was I wanted to go out to the pub and share Jesus with all of my friends. That's all I wanted to do that night, was go out to the pub and share Jesus with all my friends. And some very lovely people took me aside that evening and said, you can't go. Because there's demons there that will make you drink. Now, I'd been a Christian for a minute at that point. And I was like, firstly, I was a little bit indignant, right? That there's some demon there that's going to make me drink, you know. But then I was also like, I'm also like really new to this and maybe this is a thing. You know, and I didn't think that alcohol was a sin, but maybe it is. And all of a sudden... All of a sudden, within moments of being born spiritually, I was having religious burdens laid on my back. All I wanted to do was share Jesus, and the place that I had to go was the pub to do that. But I couldn't go there because there was going to be demons there that would make me drink. And that would have been bad. We need to, we need to be a bit self-reflective. Too much self-reflection can be not a great thing. You can go down the rabbit hole and become really narcissistic and all these sorts of things. But a little bit, a little bit of Holy Spirit-led self-reflection is good. Are there things that I'm religious about that I don't need to be religious about? Are there things in my Christian walk that I only do because that's quote-unquote what a good Christian does and not because it's actually serving my relationship with the Lord? So I want to encourage you to actually engage in that at some point this week. Secondly, secondly, the way that we drive out the slave from among us, and this is what Paul is really getting at when he's talking to the Galatians, which is we need to resist the yoke of slavery that would be placed upon us. We need to resist the yoke of slavery that would be placed upon us. It has been my experience that religious people And a religious person cannot stand to be around somebody who is free for long. It it just, it provokes them. It makes them angry. And I say that as somebody who still struggles with a little bit of religiosity. And I'll find myself in a meeting somewhere and things are happening and I'm getting angry. Why are they talking like that? Why are they doing that? What's going on? And I've learned to just know that, oh, that's, that's actually probably me just being a little bit religious. Right? But it's important, it's important not only that you walk in freedom yourself under the, under, the, under the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, but it's also important that you are able to sense and know when somebody's trying to lay a yoke of slavery on your, on your shoulders and resist it. And resist it. I will not live under a yoke of slavery. I will not conform to whatever conscience you have if the Holy Spirit has not given me a conscience on that particular thing. 
I may want to be sensitive to your conscience. I may not want to destroy your conscience intentionally by my freedom. That's what Paul says to the Romans, right? But I will not live according to that standard just because you want me to live according to that standard. I am a free brother in Christ. I am a free child of God. And I live under the lordship and the authority of the Lord Jesus, not yours. And you you should feel that freedom in the Lord as well. If there's anything I say to you from this place, right, and you're like, I feel, oh, I feel like you're really just placing a heavy burden on me. All right, and I just, I want you to feel the freedom. I am not the Holy Spirit, and I am not the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? If you are a Christian, you live under their authority. You live under their authority, not mine. But I have, I have a position of authority in, in, in the church, and, and I want to faithfully serve in that. But, but also, you need to have a conviction from the Lord about your spiritual disciplines. And there may be good things that I want you to live in. There may be good things that the Lord has for you. And I want to encourage you to live out of those things and not just a religious burden that somebody placed on you. The Spirit brings life and religion brings death. And so it's been my experience that religious people cannot stand to be around somebody who is free for long. And what usually ends up happening is that either they will leave um, or they will drive you out. Um, and that usually depends on who's got more authority in, in the community or and that sort of thing. Um, is that the two cannot peacefully coexist alongside each other. And that's what Paul says here in verse 30, um, 31. Oh, sorry, in, um, in verse 30. He says, drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never... Be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. The Lord wants you to live in freedom. The whole point of this is that you would live in a genuine Holy Spirit freedom. Not a freedom to sin. Not a freedom to destroy yourself because of the sinfulness of your life. Not that kind of freedom. But a freedom from a slavery to religion, a freedom from sin itself, a freedom to actually live as a child, a son or a daughter of God without any religious encumbrance being placed upon you that you need to carry around. And in fact, that's where Paul's going to go in chapter 5 where he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. But that's for next week. You learn how to be free next week. Um, I'm actually going to invite the worship team back, and I'll get you to stand if you're able. What we're actually going to do right now is this. Um, (laughs) As much as I'm serious, like next week we're going to jump into chapter 5. We're not going to jump into it right now. I'm reminded of this story. I believe it was D.L. Moody, um, the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And and he was holding these evangelistic crusades, and... And these crusades he was holding is like one each night. And he, had, he, he tells this story. I, I, I really hope this is actually D.L. Moody that I'm remembering correctly and not some other evangelist. But he tells this story about how on the first night he had crafted this message perfectly to build into the second night. 
And then on the second night, he had crafted this beautiful message that was going to feed into the third night. And then on the third night, he would give the gospel call for people to respond. That on the third night, they would receive the full good news of the gospel for people to respond to. And that they would come forward and be saved. And he, and he got through the first night. And he was building. And there was so many people were coming for the second night. And the second night came. And there was more people. And the, he could see that the message was hitting home. And then the third night, the Chicago fires broke out. And thousands of people lost their lives as the city of Chicago burned down. And D.L. Moody was devastated because he had had those people in front of him night one. And he didn't invite them to respond to the gospel. Because he was, he was waiting to night three. And he had them night two. And he didn't invite them to respond to the gospel. Because he was going to do it on the third night. It was going to be beautiful. This, this beautiful crescendo of preaching was going to happen on the third night and the third night never came and I want to say to you this morning just as Paul says what does the scripture say to you and he jumps into about Sarah and Hagar he says the scripture also says that today is the day of salvation today I want to encourage you don't live under a yoke of slavery any longer don't live under the tyranny of sin any longer you can be free in fact God desires for you to be free and he desires for you to be free not tomorrow or not next week he desires for you to be free today he wants you to know the Lord Jesus Christ today and so for a number of you here you know you know that Jesus is your Lord he is your Savior but perhaps as, a, as I've been speaking perhaps the Holy Spirit has been highlighting some some maybe some religious things in your heart and I would encourage you to release those to the Lord here right now in this moment and there may also be some of you who have never actually given your heart to the Lord never actually uh, given your allegiance to the Lord Jesus and I would encourage you that you are not guaranteed tomorrow every day is a gift every day is his grace but you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And I would hate for you to go to eternity having not been given an invitation. The Lord loves you. He is for you and He is not against you. He has provided everything you need to be reconciled to Him. There is no sin that He cannot forgive. There is no shame that He cannot wash away. There is no brokenness that He cannot heal. So if you're here this morning, I want you to respond in your heart and say, that is, Lord, okay, today, I'm, I'm doing it today. I'm giving my heart to you. I'm yielding my life to you. I don't know. Maybe you don't even know what that means yet. But there's something about Jesus, and, and you're just taking that, that little bit of a step in your heart and saying, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm willing to go wherever it is you want to take me. I'm sick of being enslaved to my sin. I'm sick of... I'm sick of the guilt, I'm sick of the shame, I'm sick of the burden. I need you to take it, Jesus. So I want to just invite you to respond in your heart. Um, prayer team, if you could come forward. If you need prayer for anything in specifically, if there's brokenness in your body or in your heart or family situation, I, I, I simply just say those things to kind of prompt prompt things in your mind because you see 
there's always stuff that, that can be prayed for, and oftentimes we forget to actually go before the Lord in prayer about it. I believe as the book of James says, the reason why you don't have is because you don't ask. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you have a need in your life, ask the Lord to meet that need. Ask the Lord to come into your situation.